0: Welcome to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I am managing editor Drew Griffin. And with me today, we have a special guest, uh, Eric Farnsworth, who's the vice president of the America Society and the Council for the Americas, which is a, uh, a group uniting opinion leaders to exchange ideas and create solutions to the challenges of America's today. He is a featured uh, uh, writer and uh, speaker and expert, policy expert on uh, Latin America. And uh, and the Americas in general. And so it's pertinent to talk to him today and to to bring him in. I believe he may just be off of a a Senate testimony, a Senate hearing testimony. Uh, So we're getting him uh, fresh um, with his expertise uh, all loaded up. Uh, Our main topic, um, Eric, first, welcome. Thank you, Drew. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. No, it's good to have you here. Uh, the first topic and in in kind of the one that's on the f- forefront of the American mind in regards to Latin America right now um, is uh, that of Venezuela. And uh, Venezuela is um, an issue that uh, I think has is slowly kind of boiled over and kind of reached the American consciousness, largely probably because of, of Trump's focus on the border. And you have a number of – you have three million, I think, uh, Venezuelan refugees that over the last um, – A number of years have kind of fled the country. Many of them have migrated up trying to get into the United States and are kind of part of this this discussion regarding the border and regarding uh, the um, uh, situation there with immigration and uh, the – all of this is spurred on by the crisis that uh, Venezuela is undergoing. That it's, it's basically entering into a, a failed state status, uh, despite its um, uh, rich resources. Despite the fact that uh, you know, 20 years ago, uh, when Hugo Chavez uh, led the revolution there, uh, you had uh, those immense resources, uh, kind of uh, leading to a, a flourishing of Venezuela. But through corruption and uh, through Chavez's death, and now with Nicolas Maduro. Um, There seems to be ramp corruption, there seems to be um, uh, poverty, there seems to be uh, mass starvation, and this has led to the crisis that we're at right now. And what I really want to get you to kind of talk about and and help our listeners and help our readers kind of understand the situation there, Um, the uh, president of the uh, Congress there, uh, Juan Guaido, who's declared himself president – and has been going on kind of a goodwill tour of um, friendly nations, trying to get them to kind of sign on to his his presidency, calling for um, uh, new elections and for Maduro to step down. Um, all of this, though, has created a real crisis point, and it's created a, a space in which we see a lot of uh, international actors uh, speaking into this space. And so uh, it's confusing, I think, for a lot of, of Americans. Of why Maybe why we should care is a good question and what is actually going on. So if you could apply your expertise, all right? Uh, Providence exists to equip the American mind to engage the real world. And so uh, we bring gentlemen like you here to uh, help us do that. So help us understand maybe a little bit of of where we're at, how we got there and um, the, the, presence of the current situation.
1: Well, Drew, it's really uh, good to be with you, as I mentioned, and you're correct. I just uh, came off the hill where I was testifying before the Senate Western Hemisphere Subcommittee on Venezuela. Uh, These issues are very, very uh, pertinent and timely, and on a bipartisan basis, the U.S. uh, Senate is uh, focused on them and looking for some positive change. And one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why is because we face right now the worst humanitarian crisis uh, in the modern history of Latin America. America, and that is the refugee crisis that's coming from Venezuela. It's completely man-made. There was no natural disaster, there was no hurricane or earthquake or some of the things that have caused, uh, you know, people flows in the past. And you have now fully 10 percent of Venezuela's total population is outside the country, over three million people. And the United Nations has estimated that this year alone you could add two additional million people to that people flow. So this is a real crisis, and you know, where do those folks? go. They go next door to Colombia or to Brazil, Peru, Ecuador, countries that really don't have the capacity to absorb uh, massive people flows, certainly not for the long time. So this has captured the attention of, of the world, certainly the region, and, and clearly the United States as well. So the question is, you know, how did we get here? Uh, you know, Venezuela at one point was Latin America's wealthiest economy, and it still maintains the world's largest reserves of oil. Uh, and at the same time, as you accurately noted, people are, uh, in some cases, is starving. Uh, Most people are finding uh, food uh, difficult to obtain. Uh, There's a lack of medicine. Um, There's a lack of uh, common uh, consumer products. It's just a country that's in full-scale collapse. Uh, And it's there because of the model that was instituted by Hugo Chavez. uh, When he was elected in 1998, he took office in 1999 and instituted a model of, um, we could politely call it populism, which uh, really tried to redistribute the resources uh, of Venezuela more broadly, and I don't think many of us would have a real problem with that. The question is how he did it uh, and what it has meant for uh, Venezuela's economy broadly. In other words, he spent a lot of money. He didn't invest much money so that when the price of oil uh, reached historic highs of about $120 uh, per barrel, uh, Venezuela had a lot of extra money to spend. And it was spent uh, in some cases on um, trying to alleviate poverty, but a lot of it was also spent on Uh, trying to organize the the Western hemisphere along a certain political vision and model. Certainly trillions of dollars literally was stolen in corruption. Um, And so now when the price of oil has uh, retreated to less than $60 a barrel, uh, there's a lot left, uh, there's a lot less uh, in terms of spending uh, inflow, but but there's nothing that's been invested. So the cupboard is truly bare. Uh, Meanwhile, um, the Maduro regime, which succeeded Hugo Chavez, has, uh, has, become uh, much more autocratic, much more dictatorial, uh, and has engaged in human rights abuses. I, I guess the, the last thing to, to try to wrap up uh, this, this, this broad overview uh, is that we really saw the true nature of the regime revealed on January 23rd when many in the international community uh, tried to get uh, desperately needed humanitarian assistance into Venezuela uh, from across the border in uh, Colombia and Brazil. And rather than allowing that aid to come into the country to help his own citizens, uh, Nicolas Maduro ordered his um, his security forces to shoot to kill. And there were a number of people who were killed and several hundreds
0: who were, who were wounded. So this is a regime that would rather kill people than feed them. Thank you for that. Thank you for the... Um uh, description that you provided it's very helpful um, one I want to talk a little bit about Juan uh, guaido right so that's a name that has that has popped up and I mentioned kind of earlier and that has really kind of uh, precipitated or brought this to a, a real uh, um, um, a point of, of contention is his kind of assertion of uh, he swore himself in actually uh, in front of a crowd of his supporters as uh, president uh, interim kind of interim president of Venezuela and is calling for new elections describe kind of that's situation, uh, his authority, uh, um, uh, Maduro's relationship to uh, the National Congress, which he is he's relegated to the sidelines and actually tried to disband. So to talk a little bit about that relationship and where why Gwanga, why Guando fits into this.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad you raised this because there's an awful lot of uh, misunderstanding about this whole episode and, and why does the United States recognize an interim leader and 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 54 uh, countries worldwide also recognize Mr. Guaido. And the reason is relatively simple, but uh, Give me just a little bit to explain it because it goes into detail. The Venezuelan constitution says that if there is not a president in place, uh, then the leadership of the country goes to the head of the national assembly, uh, who then is empowered to call for national elections that will then uh, bring a democratically elected uh, leader into office. Why do we think that there was no leader in place? Well, there was no leader in place because Mr. Maduro's uh, presidential mandate expired on January 10. He had run his own election in May of 2018 that uh, he uh, won, quote unquote, uh, but nobody in the international community recognized as valid. In fact, it was blatantly fraudulent. Now, there are some people who say, well, of course he won because the opposition boycotted. The opposition, some in the opposition boycotted, but many of the leading candidates, for example, were in jail, or they were exiled, or they were under house arrest. Um, that's just one example, but I could go into any number of reasons why the elections were just on their face, completely ridiculous and fraudulent. So Maduro claimed a mandate as a reelected president based on these fraudulent elections going through uh, you know until January 10, which is when his previous uh, mandate expired. And on January 10, he swore himself in as the, new, as the president of Venezuela. So the person who declared himself president was not Juan Guaido. The, president, the person who declared himself president was Nicolas Maduro. And that is a completely illegitimate act. He didn't do it in front of the National Assembly, as was required, uh, because the National Assembly is uh, dominated by the opposition, would not have allowed it. Um, and so the international community uh, said uh, that they would not recognize him as the president. So that leaves us in a country without a president. And under those circumstances, according to Venezuela's own constitution, uh, it's Juan Guaido who at that point, uh, and still is for that matter, the leader of the National Assembly who becomes the president of the nation on an interim basis. This idea that he swore himself in, I suppose, is accurate to the extent that he said, I am the interim president. But because there was no, there's no process by which to do that and there are no institutions that are free and fair in Venezuela except for the National Assembly, there would be no chance for him to to do so, for example, in front of the Supreme Court or in any other way because those are dominated by the Maduro uh, regime. So he really had no no alternative. Um, It is an unfortunate um, impression that that any number of folks have that, uh, in fact, that he just decided one day to wake up and say, I'm the president, and the U.S. decided to recognize him. It's not like that at all. Uh, This is a constitutional process. according to the rule of law, it's according to Venezuela's own constitution, and the usurper here in this context is not Juan Guaido, it's Nicolas
0: Maduro. So it's interesting to me that the... that at this, this kind of crucial uh, moment in, in Venezuelan history, you've got a, a number of people, the Juan Guaido's supporters, who are uh, basically crying out not only for freedom and for justice and for the liberty kind of they're being denied, but also for just food and water and like basic services uh, that are being denied them because of the corruption of the Maduro government. And yet you have huge factions within Venezuela, the Chavistas, right? These, these individ- groups that are still... Um, pro-Maduro, pro-Chavez, pro pro, like that um, uh, regime – um, that for reasons passing understanding, and maybe you can help provide some reasons, you know, uh, to me uh, is that, you know, when you're starving, you have no food, you have no medicine, and you're, the leader who's led you there is saying, hey, can, continue to support me, you know, I'm going to take care of you. Uh, and let's." And it, uh, uh, Maduro will get up and talk about, uh, you know, the uh, imperialist Donald Trump and the United States, which is basically trying, in his words, to um, uh, perpetrate a coup in his country and, and take over our country and in, infect it with Americanism or whatever. Whatever you want to, you know, um, language he wants to use, uh, and he has tens of thousands of people at these rallies that are cheering him on and saying, "Yes, you know, uh, we we support you." And and Guaido is is a traitor, and, and those guys. So where where does Maduro's base of support uh, come from? Where where is you know his any cause for legitimacy that he might have, votes he might get um, in future elections or past elections? Where where is this? What's the basis of this support since the country is in such a shambles?
1: still has uh, some support. That's true, although it's been shrinking uh, dramatically over the years. And depending on the poll that you look at, it's probably hovering around 20 percent or so of the population. But that still begs the question, why in the world would somebody continue to support this guy when not only has he wrecked the country, but, uh, you know, your own circumstances may be fairly dire, uh, and in most cases anyway, worse than they were when uh, Chavez first came to power, and then certainly Maduro as well. I I think there are a number of uh, reasons why he maintains some basis of support. One is, I mean, there is an ideological perspective. There are still some people in Venezuela that just think that Chavismo is an ideologically superior system to to other systems, whether it's capitalism or whether it's, uh, you know, whatever it is um, and and so they still maintain their support of him but I would judge that there's a pretty limited number most of the people who do support Maduro and again it's a shrinking number support him because literally their lives depend on it whether it's state jobs that they have through the national energy company or through state uh, you know payroll uh, that they have somehow uh, have uh, which main which is a huge percentage of Venezuela's economy uh, or the um, the uh, food packages that that are delivered to uh, regime supporters. It's called CLAP, C-L-A-P, uh, which is uh, basically a food basket that's delivered uh, periodically to regime supporters and not to those who don't support the regime. Uh, and things like... Um, medical supplies that are also available more to regime supporters so there's there's that whole sense of you know if I support the regime at least I'll be able to feed my family and how do people know that they support the regime or not well uh, you know the regime is very good about tracking its citizens uh, they have Chinese and Russian technology to be able to do that they know who votes for who the vote is not secret it's not uh, sacred and it's been completely corrupted by chavismo uh, and and even for those voting booths that may not be uh, subject Subject to manipulation or what have you, everybody thinks that they are. So that's going to determine your behavior anyway, uh, even if you're, you know, not subject to that type of surveillance. But there's also another reason. It's it's not just kind of the people who have, um, you know, who depend on, you know, minimal uh, food and medicine from the regime. It's also people who are just making out literally like the bandits that they are. Some people out of Chavismo have become multi-billionaires, and many have become multi-millionaires because they have had access to uh, a corrupt regime, which has essentially given, um, a, you know, through uh, differentiated exchange rates, through uh, access to the national oil company, in some cases to drug trafficking, uh, you know, the ability to make a lot of money in Venezuela is possible if you are connected in the regime. And so, you know, of course, those people are going to continue to to support uh, Maduro and and the direction that he's going. So you put all these three together, um, and you can come up with a certain number of of people. But um, having said that, it is absolutely clear that, uh, Juan Guaido, uh, maintains the majority of support in Venezuela. And were this put to a free and fair vote today, he would win overwhelmingly. There's no doubt in my mind. Um, and so, you know, you spoke of the rallies and I think that's absolutely true. Uh, when Maduro does go to the streets, he can, um, have some, uh, public support manifested. Um, and, and you look at the people who are at those rallies and they're clearly the ones who are on uh, some sort of government support or in, in, in the case of, uh, of uh, senior citizens, it's because their pensions rely on it, that sort of thing, uh, but. But the crowds are actually fairly small, and you look at the crowds generated uh, recently by Guaido and his rallies, and they've been massive. I mean, they literally stretch to the horizon um, uh, of, of Caracas streets and, and streets of, uh, of other major cities in Venezuela. So it's, it's definitely changing, um, but sure, there's going to be a core group of people that will maintain uh,
0: their, you know, their, their support for Maduro for the long term because really he's their lifeboat. So, looking internationally, there are a number of, of nations, like you said, that have recognized uh, Guaido's legitimacy and and said that you know Maduro should step down. Uh, but there are some nations that have actually continued to support uh, Maduro, and and those nations are kind of the bad actors of, of you know, um, uh, rebels without a cause and and. Um, In the global community, whether you've got uh, Russia, uh, you've got uh, Turkey, you've got uh, Nicaragua, you've got Cuba, there are nations out there that are um, not legitimizing Guaido's uh, stance. So talk a little bit about the international community uh, and the actors that are present in Venezuela right now. China holds uh, an immense amount of of debt, of Venezuela's debt, so obviously they have an interest there. Um, what's uh, – maybe play out the international actors maybe one by one of some of the interests that they have and the the complicating factors that come along with those relationships and interests.
1: Yeah, and uh, there's an additional one too. Cuba clearly has a right. very deep uh, engagement in Venezuela. You know, there's a saying, you're known by the company that you keep. And the company that Mr. Maduro is keeping is, the, is a rogues gallery of uh, international actors. Whereas for the most part, uh, the entire Western world, uh, as well as many uh, such as Japan, and in other parts of the world, uh, have uh, supported uh, Juan Guaido. So, so you're absolutely right to point to this dichotomy globally. Um, each country has their own um, interests in terms of why they may or may not support Mr. Maduro. For Cuba, it's it's a lifeline uh, to the regime. Cuba gets uh, some 50,000 barrels of oil per day free of charge uh, from the long-suffering Venezuelan people. I mean, Venezuelans are starving, so that Cuba can get free oil from Venezuela. It's completely perverse and unjust. But uh, but you know, the Cubans uh, need. That to survive. Uh, in return, they have uh, provided. Uh, they say it's a barter agreement. I'm not sure who's uh, you know what benefit of any either side goes to Venezuela, but the the Cubans have sent literally tens of thousands of. Um, officials uh, into Venezuela who have been thoroughly embedded into the security services, the intelligence services, um, the organs of the state. So some would claim that uh, Cuba actually runs uh, much of the Venezuelan security services. Now, we can have that debate. Uh, I don't think one can actually know that outside of a secure environment, uh, intelligence environment. But having said that, uh, they clearly are present in numbers and clearly have uh, provided a lot of guidance to the Venezuelans. With China, it's primarily financial, we think. Uh, China has several uh, billions of dollars in, in loans that are still outstanding with with Venezuela it depends on the estimate the the uh, numbers are um, hard to get at but uh, you know in the 40 billion dollar range is probably a fairly decent estimate and that money is uh, you know has already been given to Venezuela and it's already been spent what China's looking for is a return uh, through oil and so Venezuela has to pay uh, back its loans in oil and so much of uh, Venezuela's future production of oil is actually already spoken for and already paid for, and they're not going to get anything further for it, but they still have to continue those deliveries. Um, so, you know, one can talk a little bit about, uh, you know, China's also selling some intelligence equipment and, and helping uh, organize, for example, internet censorship and things like that. Is that a strategic interest in Venezuela or is it a target of opportunity? I don't know really the answer to that. I think the, the real interest is in oil um, where they are really focused. Um, Russia has its own interests. I mean, you can add all of the above to Russia, but I think you also also need to th- see the Russian interest in Venezuela, which is uh, deep, um, as very much uh, a strategic play to have a presence uh, in the Western Hemisphere that clearly bothers and, and occupies the United States, causes us to um, uh, pay a lot of attention there, to you know, in a way that we probably wouldn't want to otherwise. And it's, it occupies us, and it's in some ways a return for uh, U.S. Uh, activities uh, against Russia in terms of Ukraine or Crimea, or Georgia. That sort you of thing. You play in my backyard. Absolutely, That's exactly mirrors, right. Yeah. You know, and we can project power and com- complicate your lives in exactly the same way. But there's also an element too of uh, you know Russia is using in Venezuela to to bust international sanctions that are against Russia, um, and they're using the relationship with Venezuela to help do that. So it's multi-layered. And then you've got countries like Turkey, which uh, you know are very deeply engaged in the gold trade with Venezuela, um, and countries like Iran, which uh, you know have exported Hezbollah uh, operatives into Venezuela. And all that. So there's a there's a fairly uh, robust mix of uh, international actors in Venezuela at this point, and at the invitation of the Maduro government. Uh, and so uh, presumably they want to maintain that uh, for as long as they can do that as well.
0: So, game out for us the um, uh, prospects in terms of, of the future for Juan Guaido if he lives. You know, let's let's yeah. get let's give give him you know the benefit of uh, that he survives kind of this process and his movement survives. That um, you know, whoever controls the guns in Venezuela is going to you know hopefully you know control the country. Uh, so you look at then at that um, analogy if you think that's correct, and you can see that there is uh, um, literally thousands thousands, hundreds and thousands of, of uh, officers and and at least I think over a thousand generals, actual generals that have been uh, appointed by Maduro that are on the take, on the government take. They've been given stakes in the Venezuelan oil um, uh, company, CITCO. And so there's a um, a uh, obviously a you know a loyalty that they have there um uh, to him that's definitely been bought uh, but bought or not they have they have the power they have the guns and, and they have o- almost no interest in seeing that uh that regime toppled so i mean what looking domestically before we get into kind of international and u.s involvement and u.s policy just even domestically can you prognosticate what the the future holds for this movement is it is it moving towards a massive you know uh people's revolution, where there's just violence and a violent overthrow of the government and clash with the military. Um, where where do you see this going?
1: Well, the international community, including the United States, but certainly more broadly than, than just Washington, has made very clear to the Maduro regime that if you touch uh, Mr. Guaido, there will be significant consequences. Uh, and I think that's an appropriate message to send. Um, it puts Maduro on notice that, uh, you know, uh, killing certainly or jailing or harassing, the interim president of the country is simply not going to be tolerated by the international community but more broadly you know look nobody nobody wants violence in venezuela nobody's calling for it uh, or seeks it Um, and that is, uh, that's a reality at the same time. Uh, what are the options in terms of trying to get Mr. Maduro, uh, to a very, uh, you know, happy retirement somewhere in Turkey or Russia or somewhere else that the international community might like to see him. Um, and there aren't a lot of good options. I mean, continued public protest is clearly one, but, you know, public, protesters have been killed by Maduro's security forces. They've been harassed. They've lost their jobs. I mean, there's a real risk to going to the street to express your view. Um, There is certainly additional international pressure that uh, will continue forward. We've seen recently the United States and other countries have um, uh, issued additional sanctions against individuals, including the Uh, removal of visas, not just against uh, officials of the Venezuelan regime, but also against their family members who are in some cases living a very comfortable life in Spain or France or South Florida or other places. I mean, uh, you know, they, they know how to live the life and they've been doing it for a while. But the, I think the real play here is uh, is with the Venezuelan security forces because if you can get a, a broad number of them to shift their allegiance to Mr. Guaido, uh, then uh, you know that's the last remaining uh, pillar of Maduro's uh, real support. And if he loses the military, his his leadership in the country is is unsustainable. So there is a lot of effort underway uh, by Guaido and his people, and also in the international community, to try to encourage the uh, Venezuelan military to shift their focus. And we've already seen any number of hundreds. Uh, the estimates vary and they change by the day, but 600 or so uh, military uh, officials uh, change their, uh, their, their support. Uh, that's not nearly enough to create a quorum or to, to create a change on the ground, but it's a start. And the fact that it continues um, you know, and gains momentum, I think that's something that probably has to worry Mr. Maduro very much.
0: Well, I wonder if it does, and it's interesting that you bring that up because uh, there is a report from uh, Jorge Ramos, who is a Telemundo uh, reporter, a high-profile journalist. A lot of people in the United States know him. He's clashed with Donald Trump and is, is a very kind of vocal and outspoken um, a Latin American uh, expert reporter, uh, was detained uh, by Maduro recently following an interview. He was interviewing him, sitting down, talking about kind of the current situation, and was confronting Maduro, like specifically about his kind of Totalitarian regime and and uh, despotism, uh, which uh, enraged Maduro, and he cut the interview short, and so um, and had uh, Ramos detained and then ultimately ejected from the country. And uh, interviews that Ramos has given uh, following this exchange, he's talked about how the the kind of mood and the general kind of countenance of Maduro during these interviews of uh, he seems to have no awareness, uh, not only self awareness but like general awareness of um, the uh, deplorable condition of his own country, that he seems to think everything is great, his leadership is great, you know, Venezuela is great again, everything is You know, everything is fine, and any news to the contrary is fake news. And um, it appears, you know, you say whether or not he realizes it or he ever, he ever gets it. I, we may be dealing with one of these types of, of despots, these, these um, uh, dictators and, and totalitarians that are divorced from reality. And have created for themselves their one of their, their own kind of um, bubble of uh, self-affirmation that they are unaware and, and to the extent they are aware, probably unconcerned with the suffering of their own people. So is there what could – let's switch over to the U.S. policy now. Like So what the United States is doing uh, in terms of rhetoric and what the United States is doing in, in support of Juan Guaido, what can be done to kind of maybe ring Maduro's bell, right? What can get his attention – uh, apart from, you know, what's been done already to kind of maybe get him to accept reality.
1: Yeah, I think you raise a really important point. I mean, I, I don't see how uh, somebody who's been not just, you know, in the leadership position of Venezuela since 2013, and before that foreign minister and senior leadership positions, how he could be unaware of the situation uh, in Caracas doesn't mean he, he you know, claims awareness of it. but But I don't see how he can be unaware of it. Having said that, I agree with you, I don't think he cares. In other words, I think his priorities are to remain in power. And if that means that the people who don't support him Either you know have an unhappy life or indeed leave the country. What's that to him? Um, and I think we've seen that, for example, in the Cuban model, um, and we've seen it in other countries uh, elsewhere as well. I mean, the the, the um, humanitarian crisis that everybody else has to deal with that's generated by Maduro—is his escape valve. I mean, people are leaving the country. He doesn't have to feed them. He doesn't have to you know, find shelter for him. And they're not going to protest, at least not against him in, in country. So um, to me, it's a very cynical exercise. Uh, and then his, uh, you know, his complete uh, dismissal of criticism of the regime or, you know, he, he doesn't even admit there's a humanitarian need, the need for humanitarian assistance in Venezuela. And, and uh, I mean, it's just outrageous. It's absolutely outrageous. People are dying because of his, uh, you know, his uh, uh, cold heart. But that's, You know, that's another topic. I mean, look, so what can the United States do about that? Well, um... This is something that, in fact, is uh, being discussed right now in Washington. What can the United States do about it? I think in the first instance, along with the international community, uh, we can and should and must and are providing additional humanitarian assistance to some very desperate people. Uh, that, at this point, is outside of Venezuela. It's prepared to go inside the country if Mr. Maduro will allow it to occur. Uh, and so we need to continue to push him and push, his, push the people around him. Uh, even if he says no, maybe there's a, a governor, maybe there's a leader of... A military brigade that's uh, posted in the southern part of the country, or the eastern or western part of the country, whatever, who will allow in some assistance to some desperate people? We can be doing that. We can certainly continue to uh, work at the international level through the United Nations, to the extent that's possible, to the OAS, um, to continue to shine the light on the Maduro regime and to turn that country into pariah country diplomatically and and, you know through isolation, and and frankly, uh, you know, continue to work with our friends and allies to bring pressure to bear on the individuals who are still driving that country into the ditch. And whether that's through, you know, asset seizures and forfeitures, whether it's through visa restrictions, whether it's through Um, you know, continued uh, efforts to try to turn members of the regime uh, to gain their support. Uh, I think all of those things are relevant. Um, And then you can continue to think about additional sanctions as well on the economy. But, you know, at the end of the day, Venezuela doesn't have a whole lot left to sanction. I mean, we've already, the United States has already sanctioned Um, oil, Uh, we haven't embargoed it, but we've sanctioned it. In other words, uh, we have uh, said that uh, if you buy uh, oil from Venezuela, you are not allowed to pay the regime. The money that you would pay for the oil goes into an escrow account. That will be allowed to be accessed by the Guaido government, um, and so you're not providing additional resources to the Maduro regime. But that's basically a, a self uh, embargo because who's going to sell to you if you can't get if they can't get paid? So that is something that is is was uh, instituted in January, and uh, and but there are some additional things that probably uh, could be considered along those lines too. So there are still many additional steps, and I guess it's up to Mr. Maduro: Does he want to try to endure that? Or does he want to say, you know, I've had enough, I've made my billions or I've stolen my billions, but either way they're in bank accounts that, you know, people can't trace and I'm going to go live the rest of my life somewhere else.
0: One of the kind of fascinating uh, facets of this, uh, the way the United States has interacted with Maduro and interacted with uh, Venezuela is, is when you compare and contrast uh, the way that we interact with other nations, any of the other despotic regimes, whether it's North Korea, it seems to be, um, especially rhetorically, and especially on part of, of Donald Trump himself and his administration, to be the a there's a, a, a dissonance, a dissonance there, right? There's this uh, this uh, you get language uh, on the part of Donald Trump towards Kim Jong Un or Vladimir Putin or um, uh, other leaders in which it's if it's not flowery and, and friendly. And and kind of flourishing. It's at least not overly harsh or at least maybe even realistically harsh. Uh, But there has been a very hard line towards Maduro. Right. And he has he's said that Maduro should step down. He said that, uh, you know, Guaido should be recognized. He's uh, called on Trump's actually called on the military to defect and to, um, uh, you know, overthrow uh, the government. And so uh, where, how do you, in terms of like a consistency with an American foreign policy, uh, make sense of this? Is this different strategies? I mean, obviously, every case is different and all politics is local and all of that. But I mean, what, um, you know, rhetorically on the part of the United States and our role as a defender of freedom and democracy uh, across the globe and, and uh, uh, or, you know, a country that advocates for... Uh, uh, stable governments and advocates uh, for freedom. Where where do you see uh, any difference uh, there? Any kind of dissonance that exists or different strategies? Uh, you know, where yeah, do you see that? These
1: are important questions, and I'm certainly not going to try to speak for the um, the president. But uh, simply to note a couple quick points. Uh, one is that the Venezuela situation has really been um, uh, organized, run, uh, led by uh, a more traditional. Uh, approach in the administration to foreign policy, particularly from the Republican side. Um, And both institutionally and also in terms of the approach, it's a fairly traditional um, effort. Um, whereas some of the other examples you've, um, mentioned are clearly non-traditional. Uh, and I think that's because the president himself has taken, although he's taken an interest in Venezuela, no doubt, he's taken less of a day to day, uh, you know, involvement in that. And, and the vice president Pence and the secretary of state Pompeo and John Bolton, the national security advisor, uh, and the head of the USAID, Mark Green and others have really taken, uh, the lead on that and are, are pursuing a more traditional foreign policy. But I think there's another point, which is, uh, uh, you know, it appeals to me. I don't know that, you know, it, it matters to a lot of other people. But the truth of the matter is Latin America is different from a foreign policy perspective. Uh, and what I mean by that is Latin America for years has um, self-identified as a democratic region, which every country in the hemisphere except for Cuba has signed on to certain obligations that require democratic governance, democratic behavior, and the uh, the support for de- democratic governance where it is threatened uh, in a sister republic. Um, and this has been you know, codified in, in all kinds of different vehicles. Uh, probably the most important one was the one that was actually signed on 9-11, 2001 in Lima, Peru. Obviously we had our own things going on that day, but in Lima, Peru, uh, the hemisphere got together to sign the Inter-American Democratic Charter, and it was signed on behalf of Venezuela by Hugo Chavez. And it declared that ve- that Venezuela, I mean, all the all the signatories, would uh, maintain democratic governance and human rights, and uh, you know all the kinds of things that are just expected in the in the in the um, community of nations of the Western Hemisphere. Venezuela has clearly gone back on those obligations, um, and so although you know no country is perfect, um, nonetheless you don't have that type of anticipation or expectation of behavior in other parts of the world. You simply don't. Latin America is different. And uh, and Latin America identifies itself differently. And I think this is something, frankly, to be very, very proud of. Uh, It speaks to the progress of the region and the aspirations of the people of the region. And it's up to the United States and our friends and allies in the region, I believe, to help support those aspirations.
0: No, I think that's that's a good uh, nuance and good discernment that that you've brought to that. I think also too, we share uh, geographic landmass. I mean, well, we're like you know, absolutely. we're tied. Yep. You know, we receive uh, refugees, and 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 there's a, almost sometimes a direct correlation um, from what happens in Latin America, what happens in South America, to. Uh, Uh, here in the United States. One quick thing kind of before we uh, wrap up, um, I want to look at the kind of faith community in uh, Venezuela. And you've written for uh, ProvidenceMag.com about this kind of particular topic, but it's a a diverse faith community. It's predominated uh, kind of by uh, Roman Catholics, but it's um, They are obviously caught in the midst of this. Uh, Oftentimes, there there are official structures of the church which are caught, you know, and and precipitously between the people and between the government. And, you know, they're sanctioned uh, by the government or allowed by the government and, and face the reduction of freedoms. I mean, it's a very tense environment uh, while they're trying to minister to their their own people uh, they are also feeling political pressures help our, our listeners maybe understand what's going on there in terms of the faith community uh, and and help kind of break that down for us yeah
1: it's a very desperate situation for many people in Venezuela as we've been talking and you know the faith community is obviously inappropriately sensitive to that uh, not just feeding people's souls but feeding their bellies too and that's a really important uh, aspect of what's going on it is ironic uh, I find that uh, those who are in Venezuela itself tend to have a uh, more... Reject, let's put it that way, more readily Chavismo and the damage that uh, Nicolas Maduro has done to Venezuela than even those of their same faith community who may be based outside of the country. And we see this particularly in the context of the Catholic Church, uh, which is the nominal uh, religion of Venezuela. But the leaders of the Catholic Church in Venezuela are very strong opponents of the Maduro regime uh, for all the reasons we've been talking about. Whereas the Pope, uh, based in Rome, obviously is uh, has. Taking a different approach, and um, it's a really interesting uh, dichotomy between the two. But it's not just the Catholic Church. I mean, there are elements of the Protestant Church as well, uh, the evangelical community. Um, you know, and again, if you're faced with these issues on a day-to-day basis, you are really living this nightmare as opposed to, uh, you know, sitting back somewhere and thinking deep thoughts about it. So it is a—it's it, it's a reality. Um, the But, you know, the faith community has also been, uh, in some ways, uh, or at least the Maduro government has tried to use and manipulate the faith community into um, supporting uh, the regime from time to time. And doing so for for all of, you know, the reasons that we would uh, recognize, right? Concern for the poor, um, you know, concern for the least of these. I mean, instincts that we all have and that we all want to see uh... you know dealt with and addressed and you know the idea that chavismo when it was first instituted was going to raise uh, you know people out of poverty and redistribute wealth and I mean, that's very very appealing to people who who have a concern for the poor as i do and others and you can see that uh... you know used uh... to try to uh, manipulate the faith community through the years but i would leave you with one statistic poverty today is higher than when Hugo Chavez came to office in 1999. So that shows you the complete and total failure of Chavismo. So even those people who, who still hold out hope as this is somehow to, uh, a model to reduce poverty, forget the politics, just to address poverty, even that uh, leg has been uh, kicked out from, from that s- particular stool. It's not. It's, it's a way to alleviate poverty, but only for the leaders of the country itself. <laughs>
0: Good lessons, I think, for us to learn. I wish humanity would learn them and, and not have to keep repeating uh, the the same lessons. Uh, are definitely our 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 hearts and, and uh, thoughts and prayers are with uh, the people of Venezuela right now and the crisis that they're enduring. And hope and pray definitely for um, uh, cool heads to prevail and and hopefully for uh, freedom to take hold and uh, justice to be done. We've been talking to uh, Eric Farnsworth, who is the uh, vice president of the American Society and the Council of Americas. Uh, Eric, we've appreciated your insight. Appreciate you writing. Uh, for Providence uh, you can check out uh, uh, Eric's writing at ProvidenceMag.com thank you for being here it's been a real pleasure thanks for having me Thank you for listening to The Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can find us online at ProvidenceMag.com. Follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine and download this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.